But we will be continuing through the book of Matthew. Uh, we will see a, a topic discussed that honestly doesn't get enough attention in churches. Uh, pastors don't preach on this as much, and I didn't really notice it this week that it's not mentioned except on Easter and at funerals. But this is pretty much the only time we really discuss this. So I'm, I'm actually glad that we were able to look into this this week. See, as, as pastors, most of us go through kind of relatively the same, same thing each week that we preach. We read the text over and over and over and try to draw out the truth. What is Jesus really trying to say? What is he saying about himself? What is his character and nature in this passage? And then, so we explain what he's saying, and then we want to contextualize that to the audience that we are preaching to. And what we will see here today is that Jesus does that exact same thing. And that Jesus does it better than we ever could, and he does it perfectly. We have seen him in previous scenes throughout this book kind of take to task these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these people that come at him and ask him hard questions, or that what they think are hard questions, and he easily dispatches them. And we'll see that again today, but we will see that with a different group. In the past, we have seen mostly Pharisees, the religious elite, right? They're the smart guys. They're the ones that think they know it all. They're the, they may not be the richest of the rich, but they're well off. They're, they're doing better than the average citizen. Today, we will see a different group coming at him for a different reason. The Pharisees just didn't like that Jesus was stealing their religious thunder. He, he seemed holier than them, and nobody does that to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the holy of the holy and we are going to hold on to that title, and Jesus is taking that from us. How dare he? Let's get him in trouble. Let's get him arrested. Let's eventually, let's get him killed. Today, we see a different set of people. They were watching this scene happen. Uh, it says that very same day. You get this scene that the Pharisees were asking Jesus a question. Then it was the Sadducees' turn today. It was almost like an ancient West Side story. I think the dance scene is in Matthew 25, where they go out on the playground and break dance, but I had to look that up to make sure I was thinking of the right movie this week because I'm not that old. So if y'all got that, you're old. So the Pharisees' plans fail. They asked Jesus last week about taxes, right? They asked him, should we pay taxes? And it fails. He answers the question perfectly as he always does, but the Sadducees think, oh, we've got a better plan. We've got a better question, a harder question that Jesus, he won't be able to answer this one there's no way for him to wiggle his way out of this. I don't know why they keep thinking this is going to work. I don't know why they don't see he's done this numerous times. It hasn't worked. But I guess they just think they're smarter than everyone else. But see, the Sadducees were different from the Pharisees. They were the rich people. They were the rich of the rich, the wealthy. They were the ones making the money off of the money changing and the sacrifice selling that we saw Jesus put it into a couple weeks ago. He ran all the money changers out of the temple. That affected the Sadducees much more than it affected the Pharisees. You see, and they, they didn't like that because it directly affected them at that point. You see, they were the, this is going to sound weird, and especially in today's culture with the way we define these terms. The Sadducees were the liberal and the conservative people of the Jewish time. Now, I know all of you are looking at me. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Here's what that means. They were liberal in practice. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter if it's moral or immoral because there is no afterlife. Nothing comes after this, so who cares? Do whatever you want to get ahead, get all the money, get all the power, get all, whatever it is that you want, get on top and stay on top. 
And until Jesus challenged this mentality, they didn't really care what he did. They didn't care if it was legal or illegal. They didn't care if the Romans liked it or didn't like it. They really just didn't care. It wasn't until he affected them directly that they did. However, they were conservative in this way. They were very, what we would call in today's term, sola scriptura. What God's word says goes. The, the extra caveat to that, though, is that they only regarded the first five books of, what, of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as authoritative. They only went by the Torah. All the rest of the books that they had at that, po- at that point were treated kind of like we treat commentaries today. I read a lot of commentaries when I prepare for a sermon. I do not regard them as inerrant. I do not regard them as infallible. They can make mistakes. I can disagree with what those commentaries say, but when I come back to God's Word, that, that ceases and desists. I cannot disagree with what is written here. That is how they treated Scripture. They cannot disagree with it, but they only regarded those first five books as authoritative. And that is why their question was what it was. Now, why they cared, I don't know, because again, they were liberal in practice. But we see Jesus affecting their wallets. And they can't allow that to happen. You see, these men come with an elaborate question that Trevor just read. And the way it is phrased, they make it seem like it's an actual event, right? There were seven brothers among us. Most theologians would agree, and I would agree, that I I don't think there was a real story. Um, I think they were just making it up to make the most crazy set of circumstances they could think of to make Jesus look stupid. But that was their intent. Their intent was to make Jesus look stupid, to make his teaching on the resurrection and the afterlife to look absurd and ridiculous. Because again, they were not trying to get him in legal trouble. They just wanted his clout to go away so that he wouldn't have enough clout to run the money changers out again because they wanted to make money again. It was more of a philosophical deal than it was legal. But they believed that nothing happened after you died. The word for that is nihilistic, right? Once we die, it's all done. Nothing happens. There's no good. There's no bad. There's no nothing. It's all over. So they lay out this picture of a man. He dies early in life. He doesn't have any kids. His wife is still living. He apparently has six brothers one by one, they remarry this woman or marry this woman because that's what Moses' law says in Deuteronomy. I got to be honest, if I'm the seventh brother, <laughs> I'll be like, I think this woman's killing these people. Like, nobody's got that kind of bad. I've seen so I married an axe murderer. I'm not marrying her. Those things don't just happen, okay? But either way, they say that it did. They act like it's a real story. Seventh brother marries. They all die before she does. Then she dies, right? This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. So this was known as the Leveret vow. If you have brothers, you would take that vow towards the, your, your brothers, hey, if you die and you don't have kids, I'll marry your wife, all these things. If it sounds weird, it does to me too. I get it, okay? But here's the thing. There is literally no indication in history that this was even still going on when they came up to Jesus to talk about it. Even the Sadducees weren't doing this anymore. That's why I don't believe that this story is real. 
And they were just trying to make Jesus look as dumb as they could. So they were bringing up this crazy story. Nobody was even carrying this out in this time. Paying taxes was still being done. So that's a real question, right? The Pharisees were, were asking him a real question with legal ramifications. If people get mad at Jesus' answer towards taxes, he might get arrested. He might get charged with treason. All of these things. That question was not, this question was not that way. It was to make Jesus look stupid, to discredit him, to keep his followers from following him, to remove his power so that they could make money any immoral way that they wanted. See, they didn't care if Jesus was around as long as he just didn't have the power to affect them. Everything would go back to status quo. They would get the power back. They would get their money back. They were already in with the Romans who were in charge at the time. They could do whatever they wanted with pretty much free range. They weren't going to be arrested for the things because they paid off the Romans to not be arrested. They wanted everything to just go back. We see this even today. People ask you questions as Christians, right? They don't really want the answer. They don't even really care that you're a Christian. They just want to make you look stupid. They bring up some obscure passage here, some obscure passage here. See, these don't, these don't, they, or they contradict. You show them how they don't contradict and they either accept or don't accept. Usually they don't. Oh, well, yeah, that's not what that means. And then they come back the next day with another one. This is exactly what's happening here. They're just trying to discredit Jesus' beliefs and make him look absurd and ridiculous for teaching the resurrection of the dead. But this is the question they chose. You, you get the picture that the Sadducees got together and like, let's ask him this. No, he, he'll be able to answer that one. No, he'll be able to answer that one. This is the one. Let's do the seven brothers thing. Let's tell them that seven brothers, all this. They get this, this image that Jesus won't have an answer to this. And they lay out this scenario and they say, when they all get to heaven or the afterlife that you talk about or when they're all resurrected, Jesus, who's wife will that woman be surely jesus would not say all of them right while the sadducees may have left some room that men could have more wives than they than one they would have never even thought about the possibility of a woman having more husbands that just was inconceivable at that time women were not going to be married to more than one person like men could quote unquote then and surely jesus would not say she had to pick one over the other six right because then who would she pick? What if she had a favorite that wasn't the first one or the last one? It's somewhere in the middle, and it takes away the rights of the other six. So surely Jesus wouldn't say that either. What else could he say? So they approach him with this question, and look at verse 29. My favorite part of, the, my favorite part of this is, you are wrong. I wish more debates would just end that way. Like, oh, that's what you think? Well, you're wrong. See ya. I wish that's how we could do it now, but it just doesn't work. But he says, you are wrong. He tells them, not only do you not know the scriptures you are claiming to know, you don't know and recognize the power of the God you claim to serve. Now, both allegations there would have been slaps in the face to the Sadducees. While they weren't the Pharisees, the religious elite, they did consider themselves pretty religious. And Jesus is saying, you don't know your scriptures and you don't know your God. That seems to be Jesus' M.O. is to publicly humiliate these people. Again, not just to humiliate them, to show his power, to show his character, to draw them away from the fallacy of their thinking. And then he expertly answers their question in a way that they had not considered and makes them look stupid again. He tells them, 
that in the afterlife, in heaven, when the resurrection of the dead happens, there will be no marriage. So your question is irrelevant. Now there may be two camps of people in the room right now. Some of them, you may be going, bring on the afterlife, no marriage, come on, let's do this. I'm going to go ahead. I'm assuming that's mostly women putting up with us men all the time. But the other camp, hopefully most of the people in here, genuinely want their marriage to continue. I love my wife. I, I love my wife very, very much. No one can make me madder and happier all in the exact same day, same hour, same quarter of same sitcom anyway but I wouldn't trade her for the world and I mean that I'm not saying that just because she's sitting over there smiling at me God has been overly gracious to me God has been overly gracious to us our marriage is far from perfect so I'm not trying to portray that picture here but it's pretty good I enjoy it I am glad I am married to her so when I hear marriage will not continue in heaven at first that does seem man why are you taking that away Jesus it's a good thing You've told us it's a good thing. You have given us much instruction on how to make it look and be as good as we can. Why are you taking that away? And it can be somewhat disheartening. And I genuinely hope for the married people in this room that it is somewhat disheartening. That you kind of go, man, I'd, I'd like that to continue. But just think how much more rewarding our relationships will be. If Jesus is taking that away to replace it with a different set of relationships, how much better those will be. There will be no tainting of sin. There will be no fear of hurt and pain. There will be no arguments. There will be truer and better intimacy, even if it's not the exact same type that we see here on earth. Our relationships in heaven may not be marriage relationships, but they will be so much better. And that, that should bring us joy, whether we have a great marriage or a dumpster fire of a marriage. Either way, they get better. So good or bad, they get much better in heaven. We will live in perfect harmony. We will know each other more perfectly. We will not have the secrets that we claim we don't have, right? We, everyone will know everything and be okay. We will love each other more passionately. We will truly live out the mandate that we should count others more significant than ourselves. Our relationships will have no hint of baggage whatsoever. And that is a beautiful thing. And something to look forward to, even if you have a great marriage that you wish could continue. And if you think about it, the Bible describes marriage, earthly marriage, to serve a purpose, right? The purpose is to look like Christ and the church, his bride. To be a picture, a glimpse, a shadow of the true marriage between Christ and his bride. Once that has occurred, what are we pointing to anymore? What purpose would marriage serve to point to something that has already happened in a much more perfect way than our marriage could ever show? What purpose would marriage serve pointing to something that we have already seen the, the better version of? But once that marriage has occurred, God is now reigning in his eternal kingdom. And we will live this, these relationships out perfectly. And that should bring us joy. This passage also goes on to say that we will be like the angels. Quick side note, this is free. We do not become angels, okay? You hear that all the time at funerals. God needed another angel. If God needs another angel, he'll make one like he made the other ones, okay? He'll just make 15 of them, and it's fine. We do not become angels floating on a cloud, playing the harp with the bow and arrow, and the hearts on the end. I'm pretty sure that's what the angels aren't doing anyway. 
But even if they are, that's not what we do, okay? We don't become something we're not. We become like them in the sense that they are created beings with the sole purpose of worshiping and glorifying God for eternity. We join them in that, okay? We become like them and we can now perfectly worship a God that we can now perfectly see without the tainting of sin, without the worry of doing things wrong. It is all going to be about him. Okay, side note over. You see, in so many ways today, we will look, we will look at this further in a minute, but this passage is not ultimately about what God is taking away, but how much more abundantly he is giving us in the afterlife what we will experience, what is promised to us instead of being taken away. Jesus tells us that we won't have marriage, but we will have something that so far surpasses that that we will not miss even the best parts of our life. This text is meant to give us abounding, steadfast, unwavering hope. Hope in something bigger and better. Hope in someone bigger and better. Hope in someone who by His grace is extending to us His resurrection that he knew at this point was only a few days away he knew what was coming he was preaching that over and over he knew what was coming he knew what had been promised him and this was this hope was something that was sorely missing from the lives of the Sadducees they had no hope that is why they lived the life that they lived the immoral life let's get everything now and and here's the thing if you truly believe there is no afterlife, why would you live any differently than they were living? Jesus is a God of hope. He does not want us to live in a hopeless state like the Sadducees that lead to all sorts of behaviors that we think we would never do. But if we are promised no afterlife, why wouldn't we? And here, if there is no afterlife, Jesus is kind of mean for telling us to give everything away and to live a life of persecution and to live a rotten life. The scriptures tell us later that if Christians, uh, if the resurrection is not true, that Christians are most to be pitied. Most. Because we're living a life expecting a reward in Jesus that we're not going to get. So let's li let, why not live a much better life? And here's the thing, I am encouraging you to do that if there is no afterlife. But there is, so don't do that. If this life is all that there is though Jesus is being kind of mean to us right but he is teaching us here that we should have a hope that when life gets us down when things don't go our way when persecution comes when suffering comes when trials come that is when we should have the most hope in Jesus look how masterfully he answers them See, remember a few minutes ago that I said that we as pastors want to contextualize our message, right? We want to tell you guys, whoever's listening to us, in a way that you will best understand the character and nature of Jesus. And Jesus does that perfectly here. This is a prime example. He restates the question about the resurrection of the dead, and then he says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Ask yourself why that is such a perfect answer. Ask yourself, where does that scripture come from that he is quoting? It doesn't come from Psalms. It could have. We'll look at that in a second. It doesn't come from Daniel. It could have. Ezekiel. could have. Isaiah. It could have. But then the Sadducees would have been like, yeah, but those are just commentaries. 
Those are just, that, that guy has it wrong. He quotes from Exodus 3, verse 6, a scripture that these Sadducees would not have only recognized, would have had memorized word for word. And when he said that, they would have known exactly what he is talking about. And what he is talking about is he is saying, you don't know the own scriptures you're trying to use against me. You don't even know what they, God is trying to say here. He says, Moses encountered the burning bush, and God told him to take off his sandals for you're on holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We have to pay attention to verb tense here. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, or I was the God of Jacob. And at this point, all three of those men had been dead for at least 200 years, if not more. And God is saying, I am still actively there, God, even though they have passed on. I am still there, God. God was stating there, Jesus is reiterating here to the Sadducees, that God does not cease being God just because our physical life ends. Further than that, he is reiterating that's when the true relationship can begin. We have the opportunity when we pass on, when the afterlife begins, to have an untainted relationship with Jesus. Our sinful natures are gone completely. Not just changed like we see in Scripture now. We are a new creation, but the sin keeps popping up, right? We keep struggling in some ways here. Not in the afterlife. Death in many ways is when the real relationship with Jesus begins. We can finally see God fully. We can finally experience Him truly with nothing impeding, nothing distracting, nothing taking away or blinding us from His true character and nature. You see, between the Old Testament books of 1 Chronicles and Psalms, so kind of in that middle section of the Old Testament, the exact words, not paraphrased, the exact words, His steadfast love endures forever, is in there 49 times. Are we to assume that the word forever there means until you die? And then it's, it's no longer. Jesus is saying absolutely not. God's promises are not limited by our physical longevity. They are not limited by how long we can hold on to this life and experience His love. His promises do not stop just because our physical bodies do. Jesus is flatly saying my love does not stop there. God's love does not stop there. And he goes on to say what I would consider the thesis of this entire section of Scripture. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is where he puts the kibosh. That's right, I said that word. Kibosh on the whole thing. He told them a bit ago that they not only did not know the Scriptures, but they didn't know the power of God. So you're claiming to know the Scriptures, and what they say, and especially these first five books of the Scriptures, and yet you're ignoring what God said specifically in those. The very Scriptures you love so much point to the resurrection, and furthermore, lest you have forgotten, God created all of this out of nothing. If He wants to bring people back from the dead, daggone it, He can, and He will. You are doubting that God can do whatever God wants to do, even though you claim to worship a God that says, I can do whatever I want to do. He is powerful enough to continue our lives even after our deaths. And you have forgotten that. And he could have quoted from all over Old Testament Scripture. And we talked about why he didn't.
But I want to bring to our attention Daniel 12.2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26.19. Your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. You will dwell in the dust, awake and sing forever, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God. This is the resurrection body prophesied from the time of Job, which many people think was the first book actually written down. Psalm 16, Psalm 68, Psalm 110. These are all talking about the resurrection of the dead. Not Jesus' resurrection specifically, the resurrection of all of those who die. Life after death was not a new concept when Jesus came along. He didn't invent it. His followers didn't invent it to coerce other followers. Hey, live this rotten life over here because you'll get something out of it. I promise. I promise. Yeah, totally. You'll get it. This has been prophesied and told about from the beginning of time. And Jesus, or God has been carrying that out over and over and over again. And he re reiterates it from the very beginning. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. This is the crux of the exchange with the Sadducees. They had no hope, so they were willing to put aside all of their morals, all of those things, sell out to Rome, so that they could experience the good life here and now before they died. But Jesus has no desire for us as his people to live with no hope like the Sadducees. The Bible is very clear. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is why it makes sense for Jesus to ask us to leave everything and follow Him. This is why it makes sense for Jesus to tell us to forsake all else if it comes between following Him and worshiping Him. This is why it makes sense for Jesus to command us to be willing to give up literally anything in our lives. Money, power, house, living in America, the comforts of home, any of those things, we have to have a loose grip on them because He has given us something better. He has given us a living hope that tells us what is to come, what reward we are seeking. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, this is where the rubber of our theology meets the proverbial road. We can say all day long that we believe these things, but then we go out and live differently. I think that sometimes the reasons we avoid this conversation and this topic of resurrection of the dead is because it's about death. You don't get to the resurrection of the dead without the dead. We don't like talking about our own death. We don't like talking about our loved one's death. We don't really like talking about death, period. And I'm not saying we should be preoccupied with dying or with death or go play in traffic. It's not what I'm saying. But we have to look at it in its proper context. We are not going to live forever. So what happens then? Where is the hope then? 
We have to ask ourselves in these times of difficulty and sadness, do I truly believe my own theology? Or am I going to hold on to the goodness of this life firmly and not let go and not want to let go? And God, how dare you take that away from me? And that's not fair. And I really wanted that job or I really wanted this or I really wanted that. How dare you take those things away from me? Or do we believe our own theology and think that God is working everything for our good and his glory? And here's the thing. I don't want it to be lost on anyone in here that I, that I don't understand. Mission Church has been going through some rough, people of Mission Church have been going through some rough stuff lately. There's been deaths, there's been sicknesses, there's just been bad news in general with people in this room or people connected to people that are normally in this room. This is a tough season for many people. And I realize that I'm speaking to some people in the thick of that even right this moment. Right now you're thinking, yeah, That stuff's happening to me right now. What do I do about it? And I want to ask you today, if people were to watch you live your everyday life, if people were to watch me live my everyday life, if people were to watch us as Mission Church live our everyday lives, would they be marked by hope? Would we look differently because we have hope in Christ and not in the things of this world, not in the earthly things that we hold so tightly to. And here's the thing, this is not some arbitrary hope founded on blind faith. Man, I hope that happens. I hope we do this. I hope the so-and-so wins the game today. That's founded on really nothing. That's founded on you just want that to happen. This is not what Jesus is calling us to. It is not some unfounded hope we use when we have no reason to believe that our hope will come true. This is a living and active hope we see founded on the truths of God's word, founded on the truth of Jesus' very resurrection himself. In that passage in 1 Peter, it says, we are given this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So without his resurrection, we don't have a hope of our resurrection, and we shouldn't. That would be founded on nothing. That would be founded on no truth whatsoever, just hoping it would happen. And yet we see Jesus' resurrection as a truth founded in scripture founded by history we see these things that is what we have our living hope based upon we live differently because we have this hope we do not despair we do not fret we do not worry the same way the world does those things because we have a living hope founded in Jesus we live as if every day can be our last and I don't mean that in some is it Tim McGraw, Live Like You're Dying? I don't know, whoever sings that song. Not ride a bull and jump out of a plane, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Not some bucket list way of life. It is understanding God can take us anytime He wants for any reason that He wants, and we are okay with that because we know what He has promised us beyond that point. We understand that death is not ever the worst thing that can happen to someone. Believers, it gets way better. Non-believers, it gets way worse. That is why we must preach the gospel to a lost and dying world because they are going to die and it is going to get much worse. This is the closest to heaven they will ever get. For believers, this is the closest to hell we will ever get is experiencing this life. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us, to our loved ones, to anyone because of the hope we have founded in Jesus' resurrection. Hope causes us not to live the same. Hope causes us not to worry the same. Hope 
causes us not to grieve the same. Hope causes us not to suffer through trials the same. Hope causes us not to even die ourselves the same as the world does. I have a really, really good friend, and he asked me to keep the story vague for numerous reasons. He has a brother-in-law, and about a year ago, he started feeling bad. They didn't really know why. He kept going to the doctor. They kept saying it's something minor. Take this medicine. Kept feeling bad. Kept going back. Finally, they narrowed it down, um, and again, for vagueness sake, it, it wasn't good. It was, it was bad news. They finally figured out what it definitely was, and it wasn't good news. But they were hopeful. They were, the doctors were, we can take care of this. 90% of people respond great to this treatment. You're good. You, you should be okay. You wouldn't want to be sick, but if you want to be sick, or if you were going to be sick, this is kind of what you would pick. Well, again, long story short, nothing's worked. Uh, it's about a year has passed, and they're, unless God miraculously intervenes, we're, we're getting close to the end. This man hasn't had his 30th birthday yet. And many people around him are asking what's going on. This wasn't on his five-year plan even a year ago. But through all of his treatments and experimental drugs and this, that, and the other, and all of the things that he's done that has taken a toll on his body, and he's been so gracious and so life-giving to all of those caring for him. And all of the, he, he has sometimes been the support they needed to grieve instead of the other way around. And Hebrews 11 tells us that we are seeking a better homeland, a heavenly homeland. This man knows this, that this is not his home. But better than that, he knows why. The other day, someone in his family asked him, just, how are you doing this? How are you so positive? And this is a firm believer in Christ asking the question. And I don't say that sarcastically. Firm believer in Christ. Asking, you're going through all this. How can you remain so positive and, and have all this confidence? And he, this is why I'm sharing this story for this quote. It says, well, I am confident in a better place but I am more confident in a better person. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, 18, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's hope. It's not hope in some arbitrary place that may or may not be better than this one. It's a hope founded in something that cannot be moved or shaken or taken away. There's a hope found in knowing that death is not the end. It is not the worst thing because it precedes the best thing. It precedes this perfect relationship that we will have for all eternity. It says the words in that 1 Thessalonians passage. That we should encourage one another in times of trial, in times of persecution, in times of suffering, in times where we're kind of hopeless, in times where we don't know what's going on and we just want God to give us some answers. And it says, therefore encourage one another with these words. What were these words? We look back that one day, one perfect day, we will get to be with the Lord forever. If you think about that enough, you're basically encouraged, hey, one day you'll die. 
That's the encouragement we see here. And I know that sounds super weird in today's culture because death is the end of everything. But that's what, they're, that's what he's saying. Encourage one another that one day you'll be with Jesus. Now, it may be Jesus comes back before you die. I get that there are some exceptions here. But we all know we're going to die, and we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And that's the encouragement. One perfect day, you get to be with Jesus forever. See, that is the reward, not the place. Because the place, no matter how perfect it is, without Jesus, just ends up looking like this place eventually. And if you look around, this place ain't perfect anymore. But with Jesus there, our hope is in a person, not a place. Our hope is based on Jesus and the truth of His resurrection. Understanding that the promise that because of His resurrection, we are promised the same resurrection. Only because we know His resurrection happened though. Only because we know He was resurrected from the dead. Our hope must be firmly rooted in Jesus and His resurrection. It is all bound up in His. 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Romans 6, 5-9. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. That is our hope. Again, it's not in a place. It's not in a better homeland. It is in a better homeland with Jesus because of His resurrection. I was talking to my friend who's going through this with his brother-in-law the other day, and he's been asked to do the funeral when that time comes which he is highly honored by. But it's an honor he doesn't want to carry out. He would much rather just grow old with this person and love him and all of these things. But he said, I know what I have to do because I know what he would want me to do is preach the gospel through and through and through on that day. So that's what I have to do. And I said, yeah, and here's the thing that we need to understand that none of us get. I'm preaching to myself today but that we need to understand is that if you went to his brother-in-law today while he is still alive, even though he's in the hospital, he's surrounded by his loved ones, and said, hey, would you like to live longer? Yes. Absolutely. Two seconds after he dies and he meets Jesus face to face, if you ask him, you want to go back? He's going to beg to stay. Please don't send me back there. Let me stay with you Jesus, those are the words we encourage each other by. For believers in Christ, that's an encouragement. One day you're going to die. You don't say that with a smile on your face very often. And yet that's the encouragement we see here in Scripture. This is why this text is so much more about what we do receive than what we don't get to experience in heaven. We may not have marriage, well, we don't have marriage in heaven the way we see it here. We may not have all of the things that we enjoy here. We may. I don't know. And we do have to die to get there. We have to go through that experience. And yet, the reward is oh so sweet. 
that we will never want any of these, thing, these things again once we meet Jesus face to face. But while we are still here, God has left us with a purpose, a commission, a command. This purpose is to pass on this living hope, to give hope to others who don't yet have it. There are people walking around in our world that look happy and look great and look like their life is all together, and they are hopeless because they either don't believe in an afterlife, they don't believe in Jesus, or they don't know what's going to happen when they die. And it is our command, it is our obedience to Jesus to go tell them. You can have this hope. Your life may be terrible from this point to the end of your life, but one day you'll die. And it'll be awesome because you know Jesus and you are bound up in His resurrection. The God-man who took upon Himself all the imperfections and sins in our lives and with an unwavering hope in the God He so desperately loves was willing to lay down His life for His enemies. Knowing that God had promised Him He would take it back up again and knowing that He could make that same promise to us. When you die, you will take up your life again. This is the hope we must live with. This is the hope we must leave here with and share with the world. This is the hope we are called to in this passage. And this is the hope we must boldly proclaim. God is not the God of the dead. God is God of the living. Let's pray.